This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Let me put a question to you. If you had to install sensitive equipment in a place that was secure and protected from natural and man-made calamities, where would you put it? My choice would be deep within a mountain. And as we've discussed recently, that's increasingly the choice of many governments and companies. But unless there's a deep mine already available, you're going to have to bore a big hole into that mountain and make sure the structure is stable over the long haul. In other words, it's not likely to cave in on all of your precious items. Is underground storage necessarily the answer in all cases? How about a location that's reasonably sheltered, pretty stable, and not so expensive to build and maintain? Like the bottom of the sea, perhaps. No kidding. For the last several years, Microsoft has been exploring this idea in what they call Project Natick. They're building data centers inside 40-foot-long pods that look an awful lot like those underground petrol tanks you sometimes see being installed in uh, gas stations. The pods contain power supplies and high-speed computers with tons of memory capacity. A bundle of cables about the size of your arm exits at one end of the pod and eventually makes a connection onshore. A few months ago, Microsoft retrieved a pod from a location off the Orkney Islands, where it's been sitting for the last two years. According to Microsoft, this experimental pod performed almost perfectly. Of course, the big question is, why? What could possibly be the advantage of sending a server farm to the bottom of the ocean? The first one is cost. The pods simply rest on the bottom without requiring expensive commercial real estate. If the pod is in international waters, it doesn't need anyone's permission to be there. Yes, the onshore portions of the cables would require permission and expense, just like undersea cables always do, but apparently this is still pretty economical. There's also the issue of heat dissipation. Computers and other equipment generate considerable amounts of heat, and getting rid of that heat is a constant problem. But the equipment in the undersea pod uses the pod's metal structure as a huge heat sink, and being surrounded with all that cold water, the pod heat sink is highly efficient. But what about vicious storms at sea? Could a pod survive a Category 5 hurricane? Microsoft says the answer is yes. They didn't say how deep their pod had been placed, but I'm guessing several hundred feet at least. A friend of mine was an officer on board a ballistic missile submarine, and he once told me that once the boat reached a depth of 400 feet, they were immune from whatever was going on at the surface. He claimed that they routinely traveled beneath violent hurricanes without even a single bump. Of course, there is still the issue of the cables in a storm, but... Humans have been laying undersea lines for more than 150 years, and we have the onshore problems pretty much solved. As the cables get near the shore, they go underground, and they're well shielded there from even the worst weather. The Northern Isles Data Center pod, as they call it, 
was built by Naval Group. That's a defense and renewable energy marine contractor. And it was locally supported by a company called Green Marine. They're uh, an Orkney Island-based marine engineering and operations firm. Both deployment and retrieval of the Northern Isles needed particularly calm weather and a full day of careful work involving robots and winches beneath the pontoons of a big gantry barge. In the course of the pod's two years underwater, it did acquire a coating of algae and barnacles, as you would expect, and some very large sea anemones, apparently. Before sliding the 12-rack, 864-server data center out of the pod's hull, Microsoft researchers took internal air samples from the still-sealed pond and sent them off for analysis in Redmond, Washington. The result? No contamination. The pot had been filled with nitrogen gas at extremely low humidity, and that created the best environment for electronics. In fact, as some of you may know, this technique is routinely used at broadcast facilities where they seal hardline antenna cables and fill them with nitrogen gas. The servers deployed aboard the Northern Isles failed at approximately one-eighth of what experts would expect from the same servers in a traditional human service data center over the same period. Microsoft's team hypothesizes that this is partly due to the sealed inert nitrogen atmosphere that the pod was pressurized with before deployment. Without any oxygen for human technicians to breathe or excessive humidity for their comfort, there are fewer opportunities for chemical corruption of all those components. Lack of bumping and jostling by those same human operators also likely contributed to the server's unusually low failure rate. The manager of product Natick believes that onshore wind farms could provide power for the pods. So not only are the pods sheltered and reasonably reliable, they're also very green. I'm speaking with Nigel Vanderhoven, K7NVH. Good afternoon, Nigel. Howdy. Nice to speak with you. Nigel, if I said the word hamwan, I have a feeling that an awful lot of listeners would have no idea what I was talking about. Can you explain? So the short answer is is that uh, we are a, uh, a high-speed wireless radio network operating in the, uh, the amateur radio portion of the 5.9 gigahertz uh, band. Uh, the goal is to bring high-speed communications, uh, you know, emergency availability and experimentation uh, to the hobby. There's been a long time where we've had a number of different data options that were very, very limited. You know, we you talk about AX25 or APRS down at, you know, 1200 baud or, or 9600 baud. You start looking at uh, more recently mesh networks, uh, which can approach better speeds, but often have, have performance issues that we've specifically engineered to try to avoid. Um, but our goal here is is at least multi-megabit, uh, and often in tens or, t- or hundreds of megabit, uh, to provide a really usable high-speed network for amateur radio and emergency communications. How does HamWAN differ from mesh networking, or does it? In some ways, it, it's, you know, you know, merely a, a technological difference. In some ways, it's it's an architectural difference. Um, probably one of the biggest things that comes to mind is that mesh networking, in general, uses a single channel. And because these are half-duplex radios, uh, every hop in the chain will have your throughput because every hop has to listen, wait, transmit, and so on. And so every hop in that chain has to repeat that process, which very much slows your 
your communication. We architected Hamland much more like uh, a conventional telecommunications cell phone network. So there is separate backhaul between all of our sites uh, facing end users. We have different sectors on different channels, so they can all be speaking at the same time. And so we get much more much more available throughput in that regard. Uh, and then in that same vein, because we have a dedicated and, and engineered backhaul network, we can engineer that backhaul to be very high performance so that we make sure that availability to a given cell site is, is high. So is it fair to say that this is not, as some people view high-speed multimedia, a collection of consumer-grade routers that have been deployed over an area? This sounds more complex. Correct. Early on when we were looking at, at the Hamlin network, we were aware of the, the typical mesh networks. And and while that's that's a fun thing to play with and, and it's certainly a value to the value to the hobby, we realized that over a wide area it was going to be problematic. Uh, to get real performance over a wide area you need to engineer it like a, a conventional cellular provider will do. Uh, and trying to throw up a number of consumer grade routers haphazardly at given users locations isn't likely to provide a really good performance and a really good experience for a user. What sort of equipment are you using? Uh, so we typically use uh, microchip radios. Uh, I know that uh, more recently some of the, the mesh folks have moved into the ubiquity radios um, but we use microchip radios. Uh, these are commercially available, uh, aimed at wireless internet service providers uh, all over the world. Uh, we use uh, the international versions of their radios uh, so we can operate on the the ham, the ham amateur radio bands up to the top of the, the 5.9 gigahertz range. Uh, and then we use sectorized antennas. So each we have three, three sector antennas on each cell site, which cover each 120 degrees of your 360 circle. And then uh, at a user location, uh, you will have a reasonably small uh, parabolic dish with a similar modem to give you the most gain towards the cell site. And these cell sites, are you sharing them with commercial users? In some cases, yes. Uh, we're not typically on you know, what you would say like an AT&T or Verizon cell site, uh, but we are at a number of different tower locations that are shared with various users. We're co-located with like FM radio broadcasters or different uh, wireless internet service providers. Uh, we are at some DNR sites, uh, so two, you know, various repeater sorts of sites. Uh, we are at uh, a local emergency operations center, which has their own quite tall tower, which which they've generally allowed, generously allowed us to use. So we we are co-located with a number of different facilities. And all of these. Uh the primary facilities are linked with a backhaul network, you said, is that correct? Yes. So we, we have point-to-point uh, -point links between each of the, the cell sites. And then, um, so those provide the backhaul connectivity between everything. And then the sector antennas provide connectivity out to clients. So is the backhaul entirely RF? Yeah, it, it is primarily RF. Our, our goal is, is to be as much RF as possible. Um, you know, we, we do occasionally add in uh, in an emergency case, we'll we'll throw in uh, a commercial uh, internet link back to the main part of the network, or uh, we'll have an internet link that happen you know, that's ready on standby in case the RF link fails, or or you know weather or something causes a, a poor performance state that we can fail over and 
and provide the best best use cases. Now you're based in the uh, Puget Sound uh, area, is that correct, of Washington? Yes. So and this comes into a, a bit of the uh, a number of confusions uh, regarding what Hamlin is. Uh, there's kind of the, the two levels of it. So Hamlin overall is an organization that sets an architecture and a standard uh, that anyone can use. We have a number of sister networks. Uh, we have one up in British Columbia, Canada, Memphis, Tennessee, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Tampa Bay, Florida, each of which that have set up their own Hamwan compatible Hamwan standards network. And then we also have, you know, let's say the flagship or the, the original network that we also maintain here in Puget Sound. Now, if a user in a given area, in one of those areas, wanted to become part of the network, is that possible? I assume it's something more involved than just simply setting up a transceiver and pointing an antenna. Yeah, that, that's very much just about it. Uh, we have instructions on our website, and, and that's part of the, the idea with the standards body, is that our goal is, is that when you, you know, if I have a setup here in Puget Sound and I travel or I move and I take my setup with me down to, say, you know, Tampa Bay, that I can point at their cell site and it will work without without any changes. So that's the goal of the standards body. And then, you know, the goal for the end user is that we've tried to make this very much as simple as possible. You don't have to register with us. You don't have to tell us where you're going to be. It, there's a set of instructions on the website on what settings to configure your modem with. And then you point that at our site, and assuming you can get signal, it just works. And what is that website, by the way, Nigel? So we are at hamwan.org. Hamwan.org. I'm just repeating it for the sake of our listeners. Correct. Could you describe, from a hardware standpoint, what a typical user station, like the one you said you could, in theory, take down to Tampa, what that would look like? Uh, so typically, and, and we've tried very hard to, to optimize costs so that you know, we, we front load the costs on the cell site. When we set up a, a cell site with the backhaul and all the sector antennas, we're, you know, we're generally up towards about $5,000 for a cell site. Uh, we try to offload that so that the user's cost can be very low. Uh, a typical user station is, say, 100 to $300, depending on uh, your needs and, and desires. Um, so it's very much in the range of, of a typical, say, a, a mobile radio for your car. Um, but it's going to be a combination of uh, a modem, a radio unit, and then an antenna. Sometimes those can be uh, combined. Uh, Microcheck does offer some combined modem and antenna packages, um, but typically it's a uh, approximately two-foot diameter uh, radome. Is, uh, not radome, but a parabolic dish is, is our recommended. It gives a good gain, a good direction, directionality, uh, and gets good performance. And coupled that with a dual chain uh, radio and uh, plug it in and configure it and and you're off to the races. I know there are a lot of variables involved, but just on average, again, putting myself in the uh, shoes of a typical user, how close would I normally have to be to one of the sites to be able to connect? We've had links up to a uh, bit more than 100 kilometers. I, I wouldn't say that that's a, going to be a great performance link for you, um, but you can be quite a long ways away assuming you have perfect line of sight. Um, and that's the key for us here is 5.9 gigahertz is very, very much line of sight. If you have a tree or two, you might be okay. If you have buildings or landforms or anything else large in the way, you're going to have a, have a hard time. 
so if we we kind of you know, I, I joke a bit and say if you can point a laser at our site, you can get a connectivity just about as far away as you want to be. But typically, you know, we have station you know, we have these cell sites located all around Puget Sound, up on uh, mountaintops, uh, kind of on both the the east and west sides, as well as a few sites within the city. Uh, and so typically folks are much closer to that. You know, we're, you know, typically more like, you know, 20 to 40 kilometers. Now the Puget Sound Hamwan was in, uh, ARRL news not long ago, uh, involving a, uh, what was it, a brush fire or a forest fire? Can you explain that? Yeah. So recently, uh, you know, within the last few weeks, uh, the dry weather on the West coast of the United States has caused a number of, of forest fires and brush fires. Uh, California and Oregon were, were significantly more impacted than, than Washington was, but we had our own fair share. Uh, and we noticed uh, on one of our cameras is we have uh, some, we try to deploy at, at least places where it makes sense. Uh, as good of cameras as possible, typically we choose a, a pan tilt zoom that we can aim it and zoom in at any point we wish. Uh, we noticed on one of our cameras down uh, a bit south towards the Enumquah area, that there was a uh, brush fire that had started and didn't appear to be reported anywhere. And so uh, one of our users had, had seen that and sent that report off to the DNR, and uh, they uh, they were able to act on that and, and keep that fire under control. So Hamwan has significant public service applications, correct? That, I mean, that is very much our goal, yes, is you know, we are you know a public service emergency use and experimentation network. You know, our... We want to be in support of all of these things. You know, we are building the standard and, and pushing it. You know, our hope is pushing the hobby forward. Uh, and then, you know, in that process, being able to serve our, you know, our emergency use needs. You know, like I mentioned earlier, we are uh, at a, a couple different emergency operation centers, as well as the state center at uh, Camp Murray here in Washington. And uh, we are we are glad to be able to to help with that, Nigel. In what way does Hamwan differ from uh, which some listeners have perhaps heard of Arden? Are are they completely separate systems or networks? So uh, uh, Arden would be what I would you know would kind of reference uh, earlier was kind of the the typical you know quote unquote mesh network. Uh, it, it's very much a, a useful tool in the toolbox, uh, but it does have its limitations. It, it has a hard time over long distances and wide ranges and with lots of lots of things going on at the same time uh, because of the issues I noted earlier. So we tried to build very much architected towards backhaul and then distribution from there. I, I feel like my personal thought would be Arden makes sense in a localized distribution. So use Hamwan to get connectivity to your facility and then maybe use Arden within the facility. That would make sense. Well, getting out your crystal ball for a moment, Nigel, uh, how do you see the future unfolding for Hamland? So I think at, at this point, you know, we need to focus on services is that we've built this great network. We've built the network that covers a wide range of, of area. We have a number of sister networks in different parts of the country, as well as our friends up in Canada. We provide great connectivity and what I think people are really hoping for is additional services, is that, you know, we've got connectivity. Okay, what can I use it for? How can I talk to this other EOC? How can I, you know, communicate that I see, you know, a wildfire? How can I 
get an email to somebody. And so that's something that, that we've noted and are, are trying to work towards is, is adding services to the network. Because right now it, it's communication, but it, we, we need to help people be able to use it. I live in Connecticut. Uh, do you think there will ever be a ham wan in my area? I mean, that, that's uh, very much on you, my friends. Uh, <laughs> we have, so we, we have instructions on our website on, on um, building your own. Uh, you are welcome to stop by and ask questions. Anyone is welcome to start a ham wan. It doesn't cost you a dime, uh, aside from your hardware costs and deploying your environment. But, but we don't. You know, we don't require anything from that. We are happy to have other networks start up, and anyone who is interested in doing so is is more than welcome to, and we would be happy to have you. That's excellent, Nigel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.